Hello, and welcome to That's Wow, That's Women of Washington. I'm Erin Murray. Tonight is the opening of the World of Extreme Happiness at Seattle Public Theater in association with CIS Productions, and I was extremely happy to sit down with West Coast director and Seattle local Desdemona Chang to get the scoop on her latest project. I get a little tongue-tied at one early point in this episode because I was just so pumped to meet with Desdemona. Seattle Public Theater has gone through a jaw-dropping redesign, and I couldn't tell if the communist chic design of the eye-catching poster was an SPT branding statement or if the play will have us reaching for our hammer and sickle. Thankfully, Desdemona sets me straight about this hotly contemporary story tucked into a traditionally steadfast setting of China. Here we go! Hello and welcome to That's Wow, That's Women of Washington, and I'm here with a pretty incredible woman of Washington, Desdemona Chang. Would you like to say hello? Hello, thanks for having me. Yay. Thank you for uh, for being available for this. So we're here to talk about the world of extreme happiness yes. that is opening uh, at the Seattle Public Theater, written by Francis Cowhig. And I am really excited to dive into this incredible play. I'm really excited. Seattle Public Theater has just gone through a redesign. So all of the posters are very arresting. And and I couldn't tell how much of the poster was announcing the redesign of Seattle Public or what does it have to do with the play. And going into this play and looking into it, there it's very exciting. It's very exciting. And um I just can't wait to to dive further into this with you. So this is a co-production between Seattle Public Theater and CIS Productions. Yes, sorry. So who, how did this script come to you? Well, uh, I actually got the play, uh, well, I initially um, got a copy of the play via the playwright many years ago. So Francis, I worked with Francis on a workshop of this production um, four years ago, I want to say, like 2013, 2014-ish, um, in San Francisco. Um, at the time, the play was kind of taking off and being developed, and it was on its way to New York, I think. And um, she was in, in that final stage of like working, polishing, you know, making tweaks on it. And I was lucky to be with her for a few days um, through uh, a program at the Players Foundation in San Francisco, where we spent a few days with actors in town. It was kind of one of those intensive eight hours a day, kind of mm. you know, crank it out, do a reading of it. Um, that was my first time actually getting deep into the work with the playwright. I'm a big fan of Frances. I think she's super talented. Um, and she writes about topics that I find really, really necessary. She writes a lot about systems and the way people exist inside different types of systems, in my opinion. So that was when I first came across the play. Um, I hadn't I hadn't known that Seattle Public was eyeing it until Annie LaRoe emailed me oh, wow. earlier this year and said, hey, we're doing this play by Frances Calhig, Little Extreme Happiness. And I was like, I know that play. I love that playwright. And they said, well, do you want to direct it? And I said, of course I do. And that's kind of how it started. Oh, that's wonderful. And then, oh, so the, so they actually had it first. I wasn't sure if you had actually introduced yeah, it to CIS so, and so, Seattle no, no, no. Public. Um, I think, I feel like, oh, I want I don't know who it was, but there was a reading that was done that Amy Poisson directed that Kathy Shea from CIS okay. was a part of. And a number of the folks from that reading are in, are in this production. I think Kevin Lynn was a nice. part of that. So he's also part of this cast. I think there was a reading done. I want to say it was either CIS or New Century, one of those like Monday night play readings that they did. And I think that might have been how either CIS or Annie got a hold of that script. Okay. Um, And I know they've been really interested in doing plays that are more challenging, more socially, politically activating. Um, And so I think this fits really well with what they're going through and the kind of vision that they have for the institution. 
That's, yeah. yeah. Well, and so in that vein, the press release that I can see is that it's about a young woman in China and she is, she's working, um, and then she, well, here, well, yes, there's a young woman in China, and she's working at a large facility, and then something, something dramatic happens that makes her re-examine the system within, with, wherein she exists. Mm-hmm. And so that's the press release that I got, but then at doing some more research about this play, it sounds far from linear or that it sounds like it really pushes a lot of boundaries so how do you describe the story that goes on um i mean structurally the play does it does move chronologically forward so it okay. is a linear ish okay. play um it's very episodic they're like 19 19 scenes and it actually feels i don't know almost like a short film in, in wow. a way um the play the play is set in china it vacillates between the rural countryside and shenzhen and Beijing, and at the time, it, you know, Francis wrote this play um, during the time where there was that big Apple uh, controversy around mm. the workers in China committing suicide by jumping out of the buildings, and that oh no, just build suicide nets, right? We'll yeah. just catch them. It's great. And so there's a lot of concern around human rights and labor, and uh, I think that was one of the the things in the zeitgeist at the time, which I think is what crystallized in this play ultimately. I would describe, I mean, I don't know, the play doesn't feel that surrealistic okay. or out there, but it definitely had. It definitely has a bite to it. Francis's writing is very efficient, it's very poetic, it's muscular. There's not a lot of monologues. Okay. I mean, there are a few key monologues in it, but you know, for the most part, it's a lot of short exchanges back and forth, and I would call it like Pinterest without the mm. moodiness of Pinterest. Okay. You know, in a way that, I mean, when we first started rehearsals, we spent a week at the table just combing through the play. Like, what are you saying? Right? And part of one of the things the play deals with is the way that language is often, like, two-sided. The way that, you know, when you live under an authoritarian rule, or you live under in, in an oppressive system, you can't really say what you mean. Mm-hmm. So are people saying what they mean? And I guess culturally, you know, uh, the way we perceive China as a kind of um, austere not the most open or vulnerable people, right? And how does that language, you know, either enforce or challenge those stereotypes? Yeah. Are, is there, is the entire play in English or are there moments where Chinese um, is spoken? The, the play is spoken in English, but ostensibly they're all speaking Chinese, right? Okay. The idea is that we're in China and we're all speaking the same language. And so, yes, we're speaking English, but really they're all speaking Chinese. Right, so, but it's not brought to our attention. They don't say anything in Chinese. No, there's okay. there's no like there's no like language um, dis- dissonance or sure. anything like that. Where it's like, oh, I hear English, I hear Chinese now. Well, Chinese. and I, what that sounds really perfect, and now that makes sense with what else I was seeing that there is no Western force in this play, wherein right. we as the audience can align ourselves or see it from a different point of view does that make sense that's what i was yeah yeah so this idea that play exists in china um is about a chinese factory about a chinese worker and the chinese government and so in a way i mean i don't know one of the things we talked about in rehearsal was how how do you come to a play that's about china and not bring your own prejudgments about china right i think as westerners americans or european or otherwise you know, there is, you know, China has a reputation for being kind of a, a global industrial threat and kind of this, like, beware of China. They're this growing, you know, this, this, um, oh, what is, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, 
Uh, like omniscient or yeah or like this kind of like this ominous force right this like silent growing force that you should be really afraid of economically politically whatever and so i think there's always a bit of skepticism and assumptions you make and i think the play does uh (laughs) validate (laughs) some of those assumptions but i think it's hard to watch this play and not not coming with our own Western sensibility, even though that there there is no American company like I don't know if you've seen Chinglish, but this idea of mentioning like there are no we don't really drop any any Western references. There's mm. no like American protagonist to be our um, our center, you know. But the play does deal with a lot of themes and ideas that I feel are very Western. Sure. Right? This idea of meritocracy, the idea of individualism, and what happens when you know you realize your own worth and what happens when one person resists against the system? And I think that's a very American idea of, you know, uh, manifest destiny. Right. Right. And achieving potential. And I think I think this nation, the American nation, is a very individualistic nation. Right. Mm-hmm. We believe in, right, we have a whole self-help industry dedicated to, like, bettering yourself, improving yourself. How do you be successful? How do you get money and wealth and fame and all those things? Um and in a way, what happens when these very Western and very modern and new ideas manage to infiltrate a country that's had millennia of a certain way of living? Collective, collectivism. Yeah, right. And there's a bit of tension in that, too. I think that's ultimately what happens in the play, is that this young girl who's born from the countryside, tries to get work in the city, gets her first taste of capitalism, and tries to like resist the system in a way that becomes that gets out of control, and um, you know she ends up... Not in a great place, I guess. I don't want to spoil it. No, 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 no. I don't want to spoil it either. <laughs> well, and I, I, I did see that what you're saying, and here we are talking about the Apple uh, situation with the suicides, and I had seen an interview with the director who directed it at the National Theatre in, in London, and that at the time that this was writing, there was a large... Um, how, what's the word like an internal migration that there was a lot of people moving from rural communities into mm-hmm. urban centers mm-hmm. in order to get funds like get and jobs. money get jobs yeah. in order and then to sustain their families in other places and then with these mass uh, movements and uh, this focus on getting jobs getting money and giving it back to your family or what have you mm-hmm. that there is this shift in the individual and that there is a mental health movement or there is a little bit more interest it sounded like that's what that they were saying that in china now you're starting to see that development of yeah mental health i think it's a conversation that's growing i think you know traditionally the chinese have been very reluctant to talk about mental health because Mm -hmm. they don't regard it as a problem right in a way that's kind of like it's not really an issue it's not a medical concern it's just toughen up and bootstraps and just do it or don't Mm -hmm. right so I think even that as a field of conversation is a very new one, I would say, for the culture, for the country. Wow. Yeah, yeah. For and sure. may I ask the what is? Uh, have you ever been to China? Is that I don't actually know your nationality. Yeah. Or where you're, uh, so yeah. I'm I am Chinese. Um, I was born in Taiwan. Wow. Um, and I've been to China once. Okay. Actually, and I actually went to this was maybe like fifteen years ago. Um, so my so my background. Um, I guess biologically, I'm from the mainland. Like my family is part of the nationalist movement. That when Mao took power, they fled to Taiwan. They, they were one. We were the, you know, the that middle class and you know the educated class that like fled and like went to Taiwan instead. But my mom and I went to China after I graduated undergrad, because she said, you know, you should you should go to China, see the country. Beijing has changed a lot. Beijing has changed a lot more since sure. then. 
Um, but at the time, we flew into Nanking, and then we went to a small, like really like a rural, rural area of the region um, called Liansui. And it was because my grandfather had started a small college there. Wow. And she wanted me to go visit the college. And, you know, I was there to like, oh, this is, you know, the, the founder's granddaughter from America is going to come and speak to us. And I was like, oh, I need a translator. <laughs> my Chinese is really, really bad. But it was actually really stunning. And this was also, this is what, 2002, I think I did this. Wow. And I remember having like, all, I mean, there, was a, there were a lot of feelings around going back to a place that felt kind of like home, but not really. Like I didn't know anybody here. They weren't, they all looked like me kind of. Mm-hmm. And I just remember living, you know, we were living in, um, a dormitory um, on campus. The campus was a very modest campus, very modest supplies, and you know, they they would have I think exercises every morning. You would hear mm. like an alarm, like a big like an like an air raid siren almost. And all the students would go out at like six a.m., seven a.m., and they would do like jumping jacks in the quad. It felt very militant, mm-hmm. <laughs> and for me, kind of like, oh, what is that? Right. You know, and we would only have water. Only on Mondays and Wednesdays, you would get hot water from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. And that was it. Okay. And it was, I think we went during winter time. So it was snowing and it was freezing. And um, so you ha- we had all these buckets, right? And so when the, hot- when the hot water came on, you just filled all your buckets with hot water. And so you can only take hot baths or hot showers two times a week, uh, Monday and Wednesday from 8 to 9 a.m. Wow. And then figure it out the rest of the time. Or just, or just didn't bathe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really like, it was my, you know, because I was raised in LA. I mean, I came to the States when I was like three. So I spent most of my time living in this country, you know, in a pretty, like, you know, comfortable, like we weren't really, we weren't like crazy wealthy, but we were like middle class, right? And so I lived a very, pretty comfortable life in California and then, you know, came to Seattle and I've never really, I've never really known poverty or known this idea of, of scarcity, resources, until I went to visit. Right. Um, and so there's this moment of like, whoa, right, of course. I mean, yeah, you see the news, you see CNN, but it, 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 it's not real, right? In that way that we can kind of, oh, sure, it happens, but until it reaches your doorstep, um, you don't have any kind of personal connection to it. So that for me was a, a kind of a pretty stunning trip that I took. Um, and I was there for maybe like two weeks Okay. You know, um, so four baths. Yeah. <laughs> four <laughs> baths. And then it was, you know, one of those things where like there was a car, we had, you know, and they and they treated us really well because I was like a visitor from America. We had a driver who would take us around and give us a tour of places, but the roads weren't paved. You had you know people walking alongside cars and alongside bicycles, and you would see f- like occasionally like farm animals walking alongside. Sure. Um, and you know, and I was like, whoa, kind of for me, like you know, just finished college, like didn't really haven't really seen the world, and kind of this was my first. My mom was like. Come, we're gonna go. We're gonna yeah. go. We're gonna have you see some stuff, you know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was just a really um, eye-opening experience for me, you know. So, may I ask? Would you say that with this play, and I'm sure also, I mean, I know I saw Measure for Measure, which you mm-hmm. you made sure to have Asian Asian American parts in there, and of course, I saw King of the Yees, which was we. That's a it's a whole other episode <laughs> that I missed out on, but yeah. Um, and all of the, the works that you've been making since you finished your MFA studies at University of Washington, do you feel that with... So I know that you 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 are able to work with a lot of Asian American writers that are working, especially right now, mm-hmm. with this play in particular, since it does... It is sitting, the audience is will be told in some way, shape, or form that they are sitting in China and while they may not be recognized as Chinese 
no one's going to talk to them acknowledging that they're Western ears necessarily. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that this journey working on this play has been a time for you to reconnect or to connect with this story that you didn't know? Or are you pulling it forward for other people to know? Or is it, I mean, like the, what is the experience of working on this play? Yeah, it's really tricky because I still feel like in many ways China as a nation is still a bit of a reach for me. Okay. You know, I still feel myself like I'm I'm very American. Right. very like, you know, um, it's how I resonate um, culturally. And so for me, it's a bit of a reach. It's a bit of like tapping into, you know, intuitions unknown kind of. But it's been... A lot of conversations, a lot of documentary watching, a lot of YouTube watching, a lot of all the things that you do when you're researching a world that is kind of foreign to yours. Um, the difference is that for me that it's a, it has a strange kind of foreign and familiar rightness to it. Right? It's 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 a world that I have ten, ten, tangentially touched on at one point in my life that I'm pretty sure was the upbringing of my grandparents. Right? Mm-hmm. My my grandparents came from my grandfather's from northern China. He came, he grew up in a very very poor very, very poor village. And I would hear stories that he would tell me as a kid growing up about, you know, when they were so poor, they would have to eat the dirt on the ground, right? There was nothing to eat. There was, people were starving. There was no rice. And he would tell me, he would have stories about the things they would do to try to get food, to try to grow crops. And so that being kind of in my, like my cultural, like narrative memory, it's been an interesting like mashup trying to honor and, and, you know, realize this, this play. Um, And it's hard because... You know, I'm sitting in a room with a cast of folks who are Seattle and <laughs> who like came in with their latte, like, all right, like guys, let's get poor. You yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> so there's something kind of unsettling about that. But like but how else do you do it? How else do right. you how else do you tell that story without I don't know, just a lot of deep dramaturgy and and um, respect, I guess. Yeah. I suppose I just wanted to bring to attention that that must be a strange journey that it is familiar but not known right and that you're bringing it towards us as the audience you're you're bringing it towards the audience and as both a inter- someone who's introducing someone and mm-hmm. also someone who's still interested and not exactly knowing what's going to happen next i think yeah. that's a really interesting uh, position of leadership to be in with a story yeah, and, and the best way I can think about it is that I'm a bridge of some kind. Yeah. You know, like they're two very different worlds. And I think, you know, even, I mean, I also have like an immigrant background. And so I've lived, I've always lived a very hybridized life, right? I mean, when I go home to my parents, it's a very culturally, I'm a very culturally Chinese, like immersed experience. And when I come back to Seattle, I'm like, great. And here are my friends doing theater, talking about Shakespeare. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I've always seen myself as a kind of bridge between folks right and how you get one group of folk to talk to another group of folk and as a kind of mediator translator of experiences you know yeah yeah well and I want to also I want to represent the play well and I know that we've talked about some some heavier ideas about China itself but it is described as darkly funny that's it is darkly funny yeah otherwise it would just be tragic and unwatchable (laughs) (laughs) I think there's I think when you know when when things are really shitty, you do have to just laugh sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's not even funny, haha. It's funny, uh, and the play is so brusque, right? The play is just so kind of unprecious about tragedy that it 
it gets funny right. the way like sometimes Beckett gets funny. Yeah, or even like, like Chekhov. That it's just like it's almost absurd. It's, it's just, so like, miserable. God, seriously? Yeah, like we yeah. have to laugh at this. Mm-hmm. You no, know? there's no and there's just no time. Like I think only I mean I don't know. No one in this play pities themselves. Great. Okay. The way that I think as privileged folks we might pity them mm-hmm. because we're like oh my god you guys don't have or I can't imagine it's like well they don't care yeah. Right, they don't need your pity. They don't need your um, sentimentality around their situation. Right, there's a folks who are surviving. There's a folks who are getting by. There's a folks who are always moving forward, and that's what they do. They move forward. They they soldier on, and so trying to hold to that, like you know, this this notion of there's no time. There's no. <laughs> We're not going to get sad about this. You can get sad for a hot second. But that's about it. You got to yeah. move on. Right. There's no time. Well, to and that's not the feelings. point. There's not. It's not come to Seattle Public Theater and bring your Kleenex and let's have a feel about right, this right, story. Right. It's not about the. It's about the trajectory of what happens. Right. Like what do these characters want? What are they after? You know. And most of the time, it's success, achievement, um, money. Those are really. I mean, there are things that we all want. Yeah. Just that there's just a different set of rules they're playing by. You know, and that can end up that and that kind of dissonance is often funny too. When you see, you know, there's a scene. Um, where the, one of the girls in the factory is practicing like some self-help language. And it sounds very like something you see out of a Tony Robbins book or something, <laughs> right? Or they go to this they go to this big auditorium for this, it's almost like a mega church where right. they meet like a motivational speaker and they talk about how you achieve your best self, how you realize your dreams and your goals. And it's like, wow, it's a thing. It's a thing, right? We, th- we think of it as a very Western idea. And so seeing that, Seeing that lived in inside this China container has a kind of dissonance that I think is very funny. Yeah. I'm excited. No, that sounds yeah. no, that sounds that sounds incredible. Um, to watch Chinese, to watch a what we think of as a kind of an isolated culture, then experience their mm-hmm. first TED talk. You know, yeah. <laughs> which is, is so Pretty known much. to us. Uh, yeah, Pretty yeah. Because I think you know, because of technology and like modernity, Western influences have infiltrated China in a big way, right? That. And we talk about we talked about in the rehearsal room, you know, how priorities have shifted so much now because of of technology and like modern lifestyles. Like the difference now between China and America is not even about geographical culture. It's more about generational splits, right? Like modern China and modern America are very similar now mm. in terms of how the current generation views itself, the way we prioritize things. Like you, you go into certain parts of China, you won't see sidewalks, but you'll see iPhones. Right, hmm. there's no running water, but they all have iPhones. Yeah, because that is the that is now this generation's priority, right? And before it might have been about infrastructure, or it might have been about telephones or something. So there is actually more commonality than we think. Sure, between the two countries. That's yeah. exciting. No, I think um, uh, uh, that no, I'm excited to see how this play. That I saw the dark the dark comedy, and I saw the this mentions of the where they are in history and that they do seem to be, that China does seem to be going through um, a large shift that we aren't appreciating because we are constantly being told they're taking our jobs, all of our cars are going to be mm-hmm. China. Like, and, and we're not able to appreciate a cultural shift that has nothing to, doesn't have a direct right. impact on our wallet. And right. so I'm glad Well, that- it does, because everything, ha- everything that's happening in China now, the burning of coal, the pollution, how do you think your stuff's so cheap? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, you, you find me a factory worker in America who's willing to endure the conditions that they're enduring in Shenzhen and 
let's have a conversation yeah. about it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm excited just that there, this is a story that that's not the point of it, of just like, oh, this is how it affects your wallet. That is, right. it, that is a, a way to, to just have a great Chinese story. Mm-hmm. I feel, in conclusion, because you're here on the mic, um, <laughs> I, I would like to ask you, you know, people have been commenting, wow, look at Seattle right now, Seattle in the fall. We have Dragon Lady. We have uh-huh. King of the Yees. And then I think that we're also talking, I think people are also lumping in, you know, the who and the what, the who and the what. at uh, Arts West. And then we have the world of extreme happiness happening mm-hmm. in at Seattle Public Theater. You work all over the country. Mm-hmm. And are we behind the times? Is all of us sitting around going, wow, look at all the fantastic Asian-centered stories that we're having right all at the same time. Right. And we're all excited about it. Are we behind the times? Has this the first time that you've seen so much happening in, in, in where you are working? And do you have feelings about it other than, yeah, it's happening and let's keep going, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a little, let's keep happening, let's keep going. But I feel like my feelings around the nature of representation whether it's asian you know latinx you know black theater um it's complicated it's complicated because it's always around like who gets to make decisions about what gets programmed and it's all happening because these white artistic directors decided to hire us right and so in a way it's like yay but and also like this has been around for 20 years. Right. Porkville's been around for a long time. You know what I mean? Like, we had NWAP back in the day. And so it's just because... And so, again, complicated feelings around it. So finally, when it gets to act, we're like, it's exciting. It wasn't exciting when we were just doing our own terms. We have to, we have to do it on the terms of the main stage theaters, right? Um, so on, on one hand, I'm, I'm really appreciative. And on the other hand, I under, I wonder like why wasn't it visible when we were, when we've been doing this, you know, since the why 80s. didn't it count? Until why didn't now? it count back then? It, right now, and now it counts, right? And so there's a, it's a, it's a conversation about visibility. It's a conversation about at what at what point do these stories actually hit your front door, right? So I guess that's kind of like the the condensed version. Appreciative, but also frustrating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a point of stop. There's no point like, oh, you can check the box. Like you did it. There's no completion. Are we going to see this next year? Are we going to see? And and also like the thing I'm always, you know, working on is who are we not seeing? Mm. Right. Um, It's easy for us to kind of applaud it once it's here, but who are, what stories are we not telling that we feel like we should? And it's, 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 it's an eternal challenge, right? You don't know what you don't know. So you spend all of your time wondering, like, what am I not seeing out there? Because all I can see is what I see. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for for taking this time with me. You're a very busy woman. (laughs) Uh, I am very aware of that. And this was such a pleasure to sit down and just to get your voice on the mic. And I can't wait to see the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Desdemona. The World of Extreme Happiness opens tonight, October 13th, and runs through November 5th at the Seattle Public Theater as a co-production with CIS Productions. Go, wear red. It'll be fabulous. Go forth, fems. Remember to dare and do. 